Well, in 2001, NBC introduced America to a new game show called Fear Factor. How many of you are familiar with Fear Factor? You remember Fear Factor? Yeah, quite a few in here. So Fear Factor taught, sought to push people to the limits as to what they would be willing to do or not do for $50,000. Now I want you to think about that for a second. What would you be willing to do for $50,000? This was the question that Fear Factor sought to answer. So they would put the contestants through a variety of tests. Normally it was three tests, and the first one was a test of physicality. Contestants would be required to jump from one skyscraper to the next, or they'd be required to drive a moving vehicle onto a tractor trailer at 80 miles per hour. They'd have to climb up a ladder that's connected to a helicopter in flight over the ocean. There were all of these challenges, and I'm assuming that most of us would be willing to at least attempt to do this test for the sake of winning 50,000 bucks. But the second test is where things got real. Because the second test wasn't a test of physicality, it was a test of the mind. This was a test where people's worst fears became a reality. So they'd be required to sit in a glass box filled with caterpillars and worms and cockroaches. They'd be required to eat live spiders. On one occasion, the contestants walked into a barn and as they get into the barn, they notice there's this table that's set before them. There's a feast, and there's this giant silver platter, and the platter's covered. And as they sit down, they notice that there are live sheep walking around the barn. But when the camera kind of zooms in on the sheep, some of them are missing eyes. See where I'm going here? So they all sit down at the table, and the silver platter is opened. And lo and behold, there are the eyeballs. And the challenge is you must eat them without getting sick. It is amazing to me what people are willing to do for $50,000. It's amazing to me what people will do for popularity, for fame, for likes, for followers. It's amazing to me oftentimes what people are willing to do for love. There are men who have put to the side hunting and fishing and their favorite sports team for the sake of a woman that they fall in love with. And some of you are going, that's not a woman of God, if she requires that. <laughs> there are women who will take up hunting and fishing and wear the game day jersey. And some of you are going, that's a woman of God. But as we come to our text this morning, we find ourselves put in a situation where a woman who's not named here, although we will discover who she is, a woman begins to reveal her allegiance, her devotion, ultimately her adoration towards Christ. She's willing to do anything. She's willing to give up something extremely valuable. This morning, I am asking the question, not only to myself, but ultimately to every single person in this room, what is it that you're willing to do? Not necessarily for money, not for fame, not for love for a person here on earth, but what are you willing to do for Christ? Where are you willing to go? What are you willing to give up? This is what I believe that the text is seeking to say. And Mark is ultimately trying to convey to his audience that nothing compares to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And if that is the case, it should cause us as Christians to be willing to go anywhere, to be willing to do anything and to give up anything. 
That's what I want us to look at this morning, and I've sought to break the text up into three specific parts. So I want you to notice with me first, in verses 1 and 2, there is a dark prelude. Mark says, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. Now, here's what you need to know about the Passover. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, the Passover is the equivalent of an American's 4th of July celebration. And this is the time where the Israelites look back on the truth that God had delivered the nation of Israel from the grip of Egypt. You probably remember this. It goes all the way back to Exodus 12. God reveals himself to Moses. He says, you are going to be the one who delivers my people. You're going to stand before the most powerful ruler on the planet, this man called Pharaoh, But before you do this, I'm going to unleash plagues. Plague after plague. And the question is why? To demonstrate the glory of the God of heaven and earth. To demonstrate that this God is far more powerful than any so-called false God that the Egyptians would praise. The tenth plague is the worst. The Lord says to Moses, I'm going to take every firstborn throughout the land. I'm going to take not only the firstborn child, I'm going to take the firstborn animal. He says, the only way that you will be spared is if you sacrifice this unblemished lamb. And as you eat the lamb in its entirety, you are then to take the blood, you are to paint it over the doorpost of your home. So when I come in to wreak havoc upon the nation of Egypt, I will pass over your homes because something else died so that you wouldn't have to. It's exactly what happens. The Bible tells us, I mean, imagine there was great weeping and wailing throughout the entire nation of Egypt because not a single household was spared from the Egyptians. Even Pharaoh loses his firstborn son. God says, understanding this, he's going to be livid. He's going to kick you out of the country, so you have to be ready to bolt quick. So when you bake your bread... For it to be the nutritional value that's going to give you the ability to go where I have place for you. Don't prepare it with leaven. Just do it without it. It's going to be flat. It's going to taste a little funny. But you got to go fast. So every single year, for century after century, this is what the people of Israel did. They observed the Passover. They observed the festival of the unleavened bread. And yet on this occasion, rather than the chief priests talk about where they're going to shoot fireworks off, Rather than talk about where they're going to spend this wonderful holiday with family, they are conspiring to kill the Son of God. Now, one of the advantages that we as 21st century Christians have is we don't simply have access to one gospel, we have access to four. And so some of the other gospels seek to fill in the gaps that Mark leaves out. What's interesting, according to Matthew 26... Is that Mark, or what Mark tells us here, Matthew goes a little bit deeper, and they're not discussing this in some dark alley. Instead, Matthew 26 tells us they're in a palace with a great high priest by the name of Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is very familiar with Jesus. According to John chapter 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, you remember that story? He raises him from the dead. Of course, he has declared that he's the resurrection and the life. Lazarus comes forth from the tomb. His sisters, Mary and Martha, are there, and they're praising God, and they're celebrating. Caiaphas sees all of this, and as he finds out what's going on, he says, 
we got to do something with Jesus. Rather than recognize him as the Savior, we've got to do something with Jesus. Why? Two reasons. One, he is a threat to everything we hold dear when it comes to our position, when it comes to our security. This Jesus is going to cause us to lose followers. It's going to cause us to lose influence. So we have to do away with this man. But not only this, the moment that Rome catches wind, that the long-awaited so-called Messiah has set foot on Israel's land, they're going to come in and they're going to burn the cities down. They're going to kill our women. They're going to kill our children. And they're, again, going to strip us of our position. So Caiaphas says in John 11, it is better for one man to die than many. So here they all are, conspiring, trying to determine when they're going to do it. And it's interesting with verse 2, not during the festival. Why? Because a whole lot of people will see. And so either way, we'll lose face if we do it at this time. we got to be very crafty with how we do it. I look at this, and I can't help but say to myself or think to myself, isn't this how the world works? The world believes the only life that we should care about is the here and now. The world says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may, what? Die. So do everything you can now to achieve success. Do everything you can now to achieve popularity and influence and fame and money. And if anyone stands in your way, trample over them. The world says, follow your heart, do what makes you happy. Never mind adhering to an ancient book that wants to do nothing more than steal your joy. This is what's been happening, not just today, not just with the people in the first century. It's been happening since the fall. Paul tells us in Romans 1, verse 21, for although they knew God, that is ultimately humanity, They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to them, but their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. It's all about living in the moment. This is what the chief priests do. This is what oftentimes we find ourselves guilty of. This is even what the church finds themselves struggling with, the temptation to be liked and to enjoy the things of this world more than what Christ has to offer. It's a dark prelude. But I want you to notice with me next in verses 3 through 9 that we not only see a dark prelude, we ultimately see a sacrificial act of love. See, as the passage continues, all of a sudden we're swept not from, or we're swept away from this palace, and now we find ourselves in Bethany. Now, let me just say, if you're a student of the Bible and you read John 12's occasion of this, John 12 will say this happened six days before the Passover. Well, according to Mark 14, verse 1, how many days was it away? Two. The question is, is there inconsistency here? Is there a contradiction? No. Mark is being very strategic. So what Mark does, like a film would often do, is it shows a situation in the present, what's taking place, and then it goes back into the past to what leads to them finally getting what the people in the present wanted. So Mark takes us back to Bethany, and now we find ourselves in the home of a man by the name of Simon the leper. 
It's interesting to note, there is no other mentioning of Simon the leper throughout the scriptures. This is the only identification we have of him. So what we ultimately know is, one, he had leprosy. Must have been a pretty bad form of leprosy to simply be identified as Simon the leper. But what we also know is, is that he's probably been healed of this because if he hadn't been healed, no one would have been at his home. He would have been considered unclean. No one would have touched him, but now all of a sudden, all these people are coming to this giant party that Simon is throwing, which many commentaries will tell us then probably Jesus healed this man. Not sure. That's where I lean more towards. But he opens up his home, and not only is Jesus there with his disciples, John 12's depiction of this story tells us that Lazarus is there, that Mary is there. Not the mother to Jesus, but the sister to Lazarus. That Martha is there. This is a joyous occasion. One, not only because Simon has possibly been healed, but because Lazarus has been brought forth from the dead. I could almost see this picture. The hot dogs are being thrown on the grill. The music is playing. The balloons are up. Everyone's having a good time. All the men are sitting at this table. Jesus is reclining on his side, eating some grapes. Things are going good. And all of a sudden, this woman walks in. She does something that she's not supposed to do. She approaches a group of men at this table. Mark doesn't tell us who this woman is, but John does. This is Lazarus' sister. This is Mary. Of course, Mary heard from John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Mary knew exactly who this person was. She has now come to believe in the identity of Jesus Christ. And she walks over to him, and as she approaches him, she's holding this alabaster jar. Everyone would have recognized exactly what it was. It's this costly perfume. The Bible tells us that it's made of pure nard. If it's nard, then it's probably from the region of India. It's very rare. And according to verse 5, it's worth a year's worth of wages. So to put it in our perspective today, the average American makes roughly $50,000 a year. So here comes Mary with a perfume worth $50,000. If anyone should have received a dab of this perfume, it's Jesus. Jesus resurrected her brother. Jesus has done incredible things. So she goes up to him, but rather than simply put a little bit on his neck and put a little bit on his wrist, what does she do? All of a sudden, as the men are sitting there, the glass breaks. She doesn't drop it. She does this intentionally. And she begins to do what? She pours the bottle all over Jesus. In our society, that's a bit odd, right? Nobody would want Chanel number five poured all over them. Like I think about, I can always detect when my kids have gotten into daddy's cologne because they got too much on. But in ancient times, man, this was to represent an anointing. She is committing this incredible act and we ask ourselves, why is it That Jesus would pour, or not Jesus, but Mary would pour this entire bottle on Jesus' body. And think, $50,000 worth of perfume is dripping off the head of Christ, the feet of Christ onto the floor. Well, number one, what we recognize is that for Mary, 
No earthly possession compares to being in the presence of a Savior. No earthly possession compares to being in his presence. Can you say the same? That no earthly possession, no job, no home, no car, nothing, no family, nothing compares to being in the presence of the Savior. I've preached this sermon before. I preached this to our youth. And since preaching this to our youth, I have been overwhelmed with conviction. You see, whenever I was in Bible college and when I was in seminary, I had, we, we didn't make a lot of money. And we had family that, of course, helped us many times. We had scholarships to pay for school. We were thankful for that, but we made just enough to get by. And I remember getting on Facebook and seeing what my friends from high school were doing. Seeing the homes they were having built. Seeing the vehicles they were driving. Seeing vacations they were going on. Seeing the name brand clothes that all their kids were wearing. Some of it in embroidered and some of it like super fancy like they were made for them with their names on it and there was a sense of shame that came over me as a dad and as a husband of I can't give this to my family I got I'm ashamed that I can't be the man that a lot of these people are but one day I'm gonna do it there was a sense of envy towards these people a longing to have what I didn't have So fast forward a few years, we come to Mercy Hill, two years ago. And for the first time in many years, my wife had stayed home with our little ones. She ends up going back to work. And we begin to make a little more than we've made before. Now listen, we're by no means rich, pastor and a teacher, come on. But we made more than we needed. So what do I do? Rather than be a good steward of the money, Rather than seek to give even above and beyond or tithes and offerings, I start spending. Buy the big house. Buy a dream truck. Some of you are like, I've seen your truck. It's a Tacoma. It's my dream truck. (laughs) Buy the things for the house, the home theater system, and the smart thermostat you can control from your phone, and the Alexa apps that you say, good morning, and it lights the whole house up. Go on the trips and do all these things. And as the dust begins to settle after a little bit, I look to my wife and I'm like, is this it? It's like she thumped me in the head as she's just been watching this taking place. She says, of course it's it. It's not enough. Christ is the only thing that's enough. There are some of you here this morning that are living for possessions There are some of you here living for vacations and living for a fat 401k plan. And listen, you say, is there something wrong with having money and doing things? No. But when it becomes a higher priority than Christ, that's what's called idolatry. This is one of the pastors of this church in in confession time. It was idolatry that I was committing. Saying to myself, this is what would bring forth ultimate happiness. It's not Christ is what brings happiness. And too many of our people are pursuing the things of this world as if this is all there is. That quick, it can be gone. Jesus says, what profit is it 
if a man gains the whole world but loses his soul. Mary's demonstrating no earthly possession pales in comparison to being in the presence of the Savior. All of this stuff will end. Trucks will rust. Houses will fall into disrepair. Some of us are living through our families. Our identities are rooting in being moms or dads. Listen, children will eventually leave home. Spouses at some point will pass. And all that will be left is Christ. The answer is, is he enough? Word, is it enough? The Bible tells us the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Do we believe that? Yesterday I go into a hospital to see our brother Hugo who's having a hard time. And I walk in to this hospital room as a man who is filled in much pain. And as I walk in, I see my brother in Christ, Hugo, reading a Bible in the midst of pain, and I'm watching as this man is suffering, and yet, what is he doing? He's clinging to the only thing that is of eternal significance. He's clinging to the Word. He's clinging to his Savior, and I'm asking myself, is this me? And the answer is no. So many times it's not. We must be a church that is willing to give everything up for the sake of pursuing Christ. For some of you, that means leaving your jobs and going to the other side of the world to share the gospel. For some of you, that simply means refusing to simply live for the things of this world and to just take a stand for Christ where you are. What is it that you're going to do for Christ? What are you willing to give up? Where are you willing to go? Mary demonstrates that no earthly possession pales in comparison to being in the presence of the Savior. But secondly, she demonstrates that she doesn't care what people think. She's a boss. (laughs) She just goes in with boldness. And look at verse 4. It says, some of those present were saying indignantly, that is, they are angered. They are enraged at what this woman has done for embarrassing them like this. They say, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's worth of wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuke her harshly. You know who one of the main people is to rebuke her, according to John 12? Judas, a so-called follower of Christ, a man who had been with Jesus for three years, who was a significant part in his ministry as he collected the money as they would travel to t- from town to town. He saw the miracles. He heard the powerful sermons. And yet here's a man who is not fixated with the glory of Christ. This is a man who's fixated on himself, who's simply saying this to impress Jesus. You see the difference between a man like Judas versus a woman like Mary. Has no concern whatsoever for what anyone thinks. She just wants to glorify Christ. Can we do that? Summer, one way on Sunday, got to impress the preachers. I did a wedding last weekend. I was gone. There's all the wedding parties there, and I love the groom and the bridesmaid. Great, great couple. Some of them are acting a little bit of a fool, though. And I remember one of them coming and going, if the preacher wasn't here, let me tell you what I would do. And I'm going, what does it matter about me? It's kind of like 
a rapper that says only God can judge me. You really want that? We should be living as if Christ is the only one we're seeking glory from, not pastors, not family members, not neighbors, not coworkers. We throw caution to the wind and we refuse to compromise when it comes to the gospel of Christ in a society right now that will tell you you are a bigot, you are a liar, we stand firmly upon the truth. We don't care what other people think. We are unwavering in our compromise when it comes to our children and the way in which we raise them. You will be faithful to the church. You will go to Bible study. Not because we're trying to hopefully obtain their salvation, but because we're demonstrating what it looks like to prioritize Christ over sports, academics, or boyfriends and girlfriends. This is what we're called to do. This is our number one priority. We don't care what others think we just pursue Jesus this is Mary and do you know why Mary is willing to make such a significant sacrifice because Mary understood that Jesus the one who had identified himself as the resurrection and the life the one who identified himself as the Messiah Jesus was about to make the ultimate sacrifice for her. She doesn't do it to obtain some reward. She does it out of devotion because she knows what Christ is going to do. And listen, the reason why she doesn't care also is because look who's on her side. Verse 6, leave her alone, says Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have. You won't always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body to prepare for my burial. And this just goes over the heads of the disciples. But Mary knew. Mary understood. Some of us are scared to take a stand in our workplaces. Some of us are scared to take a stand in our schools, in our neighborhood. Look who is at our side. Look who is our advocate. I heard a theologian once say, and I've mentioned this in theology class, if you could hear, here's the thing, when Jesus raises from the dead and ascends to the Father, he's seated at the right hand, what is he doing now? He's interceding on our behalf. He's praying for us day in and day out. If you could hear Christ praying for you in the room beside you, what would you be willing to do? Where would you be willing to go? What would you be willing to give up? And yet, nevertheless, regardless of whether you can or cannot hear him, that's what he's doing. He's praying. He's praying for me. He's praying for you. So we seek to bring honor and glory to Christ for, as Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's the very reason why we can sing, Lord of hosts, you're with us, with us in the fire, with us as a shelter, with us in the storm. You will lead us through the fiercest battles. Where else would we go but with the Lord of hosts? Amen? Amen. This is what we as the church are called to do. She doesn't care what people think. We see the sacrificial act of love, demonstrating that no earthly possession pales in comparison to being in the presence. She does it because she doesn't care what anyone thinks, but I want you to notice last, there's a shocking betrayal. What we see with verses 10 and 11 
is that Jesus or Judas has been humiliated. Judas has looked like a fool in front of the disciples, in front of Lazarus, in front of Simon the leper. And Judas has finally had enough. Eventually, finally, the time has come for Judas to show his true colors. And as he is rebuked by Christ, who is rebuking him not out of anger, but out of love. I mean, this is the Jesus who eventually washes the feet of Judas. Rather than fall and submit to him as Lord, Judas refuses. And look what it says. Then Judas, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. Fast forwarding back into the present is what Mark is doing. He says this is, they were conspiring to kill. Let me show you how it plays out to where you can understand the one who will eventually betray him. This is him. This is Judas. Judas betrays him for a little bit of cash. You think about that. Mary pours perfume over the body of Christ worth a year's worth of wages, $50,000. According to Matthew 26, you know how much Judas gets for selling out Jesus? 30 pieces of silver, one month's wages. This is what Judas does. Just totally sells him out. And do you know what eventually happens to Judas? When Judas betrays Jesus, walks up to the Son of God who has the words of life and kisses him, and the chief priests arrest him, Judas flees. But Judas doesn't run off into the sunset with a good-looking girl by his side, living on an island, drinking a pina colada. Judas, stricken with guilt, eventually goes to a barren place, and he hangs himself. All for the sake of a month's worth of salary. You've probably seen the meme. You've seen the pictures, possibly on Facebook, and I'm stealing a quote. Judas had the best preacher. Judas had an awesome group of guys around him. And yet Judas forsook his Savior simply because he loved things more than Christ. And look at the outcome. And we ask ourselves, all of us in this church hearing these messages week in and week out, some of us serving, some of us singing, some of us doing all kinds of things, going and sharing the gospel. And the question that I have for you is, is why are you doing it? Is it to bring honor and glory to Christ? Or is it simply to feed that ego? And the moment that things begin to get a little odd or uncomfortable or awkward because you're called out maybe for something you shouldn't be doing in the moment, is this the moment where you're going to flee? It happens all the time. It is one of the most difficult things as being pastors of a church where you preach with boldness but with love and clarity the truth of the gospel and people hear it and they're real religious but if it isn't settling to them, they leave. Is that you? Judas gives up everything and loses his life for a month's worth of wages. Was it worth it? No. 
It is Christ and Christ alone that is worth it. To refuse to compromise, to refuse to allow the worldly possessions to make us the primary identity breadwinners of this society, that we're successful, that we're awesome at our jobs, that we're awesome parents. It's not about any of that. It is, are we committed to Christ? As we close, I want to share just really fast, just a quick story about a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. This is a true story. And Polycarp eventually became very influential as a bishop in Smyrna. He served faithfully for many years. He preached the gospel boldly, established many friendships, even from those outside of the church. And eventually, persecution became extremely severe in the area that he was in, and his name comes up, and the Roman authorities begin to pursue him. Polycarp is eventually betrayed by two of his friends. They sell him out for a little bit of money. And they go to where Polycarp is, and as they knock on the door, he opens it and greets them with a smile. Offers them food, offers them drinks, says, I will go with you, but just let me pray for a little bit. Goes into another room and prays for two hours. And they're sitting there and they're hearing his prayers some of these ancient documents that record this say that the soldiers were uncomfortable at this point, going, should we be doing this? But they know what's going to happen if they let him go. They will die. So what do they do? They then march him to the Colosseum where he will die for his faith. And as they get to the Colosseum, the authorities begin to shout towards Polycarp, and they say, have respect for your old age, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, Renounce Christ, and Polycarp looks grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium, and it says, gesturing towards them, he says, this is the leaders, renounce Christ, repent, and he says, 86 years I have served him. This is Polycarp speaking, and he's never once hurt me. How now can I blaspheme my king and my savior who has always preserved me? Oh. They say, We have wild animals here. We will throw you to them if you do not repent. Polycarp says, call them. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. They say, if not the animals, we will burn you at the stake. He says, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And they burn him at the stake. He doesn't die right away. They have to stab him. This is a man, 86 years, he says. 86 years I've served him, and he's never done me wrong. He's never harmed me. He's always preserved me. Is that your story? 35 years, he's never steered me in a wrong direction. He's never been for my destruction. He's always been for my good. May we as a church 
boldly proclaim that with however old you are, with however long you've been saved. For the grass will wither, the flower will fall, but the word of our Lord will remain forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, more than ever, I need this reminder, I need this sermon, not just to be able to preach it for other people, but for myself. Father, I pray that we as a church, that we as pastoral staff, will see the importance of living not for worldly success, not for popularity, not for fame, but that we would be willing to do anything, go anywhere, and give up anything for the sake of Jesus Christ. Lord, this morning it is my prayer that you would move in this place, that people's hearts would be convicted. For those who are not saved, that they would know the wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the great ultimate Passover lamb gave his life so that they wouldn't have to. That they would simply know that by faith in Jesus Christ and repenting of their sins, they could be saved. Father, there are some here in this church who are tired, exhausted, who have struggled with disappointment, with setback. Some have possibly been mistreated because of their stance for Christ and they're wanting to just give up. God, give them strength. Father, we know that the Son is interceding on our behalf day in and day out, but make that more of a reality in our lives. May we know with confidence that Jesus Christ is praying on our behalf day in and day out. And may we be bold witnesses for the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only towards our families, not only in our churches, but towards this community and ultimately a world that is hostile towards you and is in desperate need of the gospel. Father, may we take this message and not simply allow it to go in one ear and out the other, but may we apply it in our lives. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. This morning, the altar is open. If you would like to come and pray, if you'd like to talk with us, we invite you to do so. Either way, make sure to do business with the Lord this morning. Would you please stand?